Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching us online, we are so grateful for you continuing to gather with us each and every week. And if you're with us in the Cross Point Center, we want to extend a special welcome to you as we conclude our series, A Roar to Restore, this morning. As we've been studying over the past couple of weeks through the book of Amos, I believe God has really taught us some great things. And hopefully, as you've been able to walk through your days, you have been able to apply those messages in your life. I want to ask you guys a quick question. How many of you know who this guy is? Yes, Jim Cantore. Now, if you're, not from, if you're not from around here, if you're not from these parts, uh, Jim Cantore, this might not mean much of anything to you. You might say that's just the weather guy. He's on the Weather Channel. But for those of us who have weathered a few hurricanes in this general vicinity, Jim Cantore is synonymous with run for the hills. Get out of town, go somewhere safe and bring your kids and your dog and everything and get out of here. So I started thinking about it, thought about some of the things that we see as it relates to Jim Cantore coming to town. Some things that people say about him. Some people write posts about Jim and say, we don't want you to come here. And I'll show you a few examples of that. The Outer Beaches Realty says, not welcome, Jim Cantore. Please do not come to our facility. Don't frequent here. Don't come here. We don't want you. The whole state of South Carolina, in fact, says, dear Jim Cantore, don't even think about it. They didn't want him in their area. And whenever I think about the prophets in the Old Testament, there's kind of a connection there. Typically, whenever prophets came to town, things were not going well. Things did not seem to be uh, the way that God wanted them to be. And so prophets came and they shared God's message with the people. Now, we don't know if there were signs on people's doors asking the prophets to go away. But we do know, at least in Amos's case, the priest Amaziah said, we want you to go home. We want you to stay gone, get out of here. Things seem to be going okay. But imagine for us, just a moment, if Jim Cantori came here and our, our hurricane tracking maps looked something like this. Now, we'd probably be a little confused, wouldn't we? We'd probably say, Jim, I know meteorologists aren't always as accurate as we would like for them to be. But really, when we look out in the ocean, there's nothing coming. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything's fine. Just go home. It's kind of how it was for the people of Israel whenever Amos came and started prophesying there. Things seemed to be going in the right direction. The housing market was booming. People were seeing the, 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 the land expanding in terms of where Israel was reaching the monarchy or the, the kingdom at that point seemed stable. The king had been there for many years and seemed to be in a stable place. But God, through the prophet, preaches about a, a judgment that's coming, about a way in which God's going to judge the people. And from our perspective, when we look back across history, we realize that it was still another 40 years before any of the things that Amos talks about actually takes place. So from their perspective, it looks like things are going really well. And yet Amos enters into this reality. He enters into this kingdom and he relentlessly pursues the people. He relentlessly chastens them with the message of God's impending and coming judgment. He 
he at every point, whenever we read through this book, it seems like at every line, he's cutting down a little bit more of the people. He's cutting down a little bit more of the things that they're trusting in. All the things that they think are God's blessing, the things that they believe are the reason why God is blessing them from Amos's prophecy are things that God is going to be judging them for. Now, if we ended before we got to chapter nine and kind of the middle of that, we would look and say, man, this is a despairing and depressing book. We would not want to be a part of any of that. We would actually probably even ask the question, is there any hope for these people? Is there any hope for them? Maybe today that's where you are. Maybe you've come here and you look around our world and you say, is, is there any hope? Is there anything that can come out of this that is good? Can God do anything with this mess? Then we get to chapters 9, verses 11 through 15. And God answers Israel through Amos, and he answers to us, yes. God can and will do something. Commentators write about this passage, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9, that in the book of Amos, that it is the most abrupt change in tone that they see. And they say sometimes they, they have observed that it might be one of the most abrupt changes of tone in the whole Bible, where God goes from a series of chapters dealing with judgment to a very quick turn to his promises of restoration. One uh, writer says that here God moves from the sword of judgment to the trowel of reconstruction as he talks to them about how he's going to rebuild their kingdom. Now, as we think about that word hope, we throw that around a lot, don't we? You probably say hope dozens of times every day. But oftentimes, whenever we talk about hope in our culture, we're talking about uncertainties. Give me give you a few examples. I hope I get a raise. Maybe today you say, I hope that my candidate wins the election on Tuesday. Some of you, some of you, as you came to church this morning, you said, I hope I don't get pulled over for going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. I've got to get my kids there. I have to get there in a hurry. And you were hoping beyond hope that you were going to make it on time. If you're an LSU fan, you might think, man, I hope that we can win a game sometime this year. Uh. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yes. But all these things are built on uncertainties. I hope, I hope, I hope. But when we talk about biblical hope, we know that there's something different about it. I want to give you guys a definition. It's a little bit of a lengthy definition, but I want you guys to, to stay tuned in on this definition of biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future, which is based on the unchanging character of God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. I'm going to repeat that to you. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future, which is based on the unchanging character of God to accomplish what he's promised in his word. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter six. It is when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So there are two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie his character. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Hope is like an anchor for our souls. Whenever the world around us is in turmoil and the circumstances of our life are turbulent, when tragedy are like waves that are billowing over us, whenever there are things in our lives, uncertainty may seem to fall upon us. Hope provides us with the steadfastness to move forward, trusting confidently in the purposes and promises of an unchanging God. This, friends, is what the people of Israel would need. They would need a reminder to look back on. They would need reminders whenever their world was turned upside down and it seemed like God had failed. They would need something to look back on. They would need something to remind them of the hope that God had set before them. And this is what we need today. Not simply because of an election that's coming up, but because we live in a fallen world. And I don't really have to convince you of that. Things are not like they should be. People hate each other. There is animosity around every corner. People suffer. Even this week, maybe even this morning, you have been sinned against or have sinned against somebody else. But the question before us today isn't, do we need hope? I think that everyone in this room would say, yes, we need hope. We need some kind of hope in this world. But the question before us is this. Can we hope? Should we hope? Is there anything that we can set our hope on that's not going to disappoint us today or tomorrow? And I believe in these last few verses of Amos, God gives us four truths, four reasons for us to be reminded that we can, in fact, hope again. I'm gonna ask that you would join me in prayer as we begin our study. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're good and that you're wise and that you have chosen to help us to hope through your word. I pray that you would give us confidence today. Open our ears and our eyes to see the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would open in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9, Amos chapter 9 on your Bibles, on your apps, whatever it is that you have brought here this morning, the scripture will be on the screen, but I'd encourage you to follow along with me uh, in your own copy of scripture. We see the first way that God restores hope is in this way. He restores hope through a promised king. He restores hope through a promised king. We see this in verse 11 of chapter 9. This is where Amos writes, the Lord is speaking. It says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The phrase you see there, in that day, is a way in which prophets talk about a day that is in the future, a day that is coming in the future that they can see in which God is going to accomplish a great work, a decisive work. He directs the attention of the people of Israel to that day past the impending judgment that is to be upon them. In that day, he is going to restore all that has been lost. And he talks about this idea of the booth of David. And as we read that, that doesn't really ring familiar with us today. We don't really talk about booths unless you're talking about a carnival or something like that. But a booth is signifies David's dynasty, David's kingdom or his household. 
And for many, many years, uh, we have seen that this, this dynasty was once a glorious reality. It was once united under David's kingship, but it's begun to fall apart. Soon after Solomon, David's son, died, we see that it splits into two kingdoms. What was once united is now two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel and the southern kingdom of the two tribes of Judah. We know that in the near future, again, 40 years after this judgment comes, that that northern kingdom of Israel is going to be sent into exile and it's going to cease to exist as a nation. And about 175 years after this, we see the two southern tribes are going to go into exile in Babylon, and they're going to, we will see the last king of Judah, from our perspective, Zedekiah, reign on the throne. Through this process, what was once considered beautiful, what was once considered uh, a kingdom that was going to stand the test of time, it was going to expand and reach people with the message of God's work, looked now like an old broken down, weather, tattered, and torn tent that had been left out in the backyard for too long. Nothing of the semblance of what it once looked like was now the reality for the kingdom of David. But God says that he will rebuild what was broken. He will be faithful to rebuild this kingdom. And and for many of us, we might say, well, why does that even matter? Like, We look across history and kingdoms come and kingdoms go. What's so significant about this kingdom, about this king? Well, it's important because God has made a promise. He made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 15 and 16. He says that this house, this kingdom that he was going to promise David was going to live forever that David was going to have a king that was going to reign on his throne forever and ever, and his kingdom would have no end. So if David's line, if his kingdom ended and was destroyed, then God would not have kept his promise. God would not have been faithful to his word. And even in the midst of Amos, we see him affirming and reminding the people that he was going to be faithful. He says in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, Behold the days Uh, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. You see, God is going to maintain a remnant. And a remnant is just another word for a small group of people, if you will. He's going to maintain and sustain them, even though the kingdoms are going to have been divided, even though they're going to go into exile, even though the kingdom is going to shrink significantly, Even though there's going to be 400 years where God is silent between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God still commits to bringing a king. He commits to bringing a king. He still brings a king, and his name is King Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter 1, where the angel comes to Mary and says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Catch this, guys. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. God raised up the booth of David. He kept the king in order. He made sure that a king would reign. His name is Jesus. 
But not only has God raised up a king singular, we see in this passage, he talks about a booth and, and there is a, there's a corporate nature of this. He's raising a house. He's raising the church. We see this in, in 1 Peter. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, church, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this household, this building built on the cornerstone of King Jesus is not a stagnant edifice. It is moving. It is dynamic. God uses his kingdom to continue showing his restoration power. And we see this in the fact that God restores hope by expanding his kingdom. He brings a king and then he expands his kingdom. We see this in verse number 12. Notice what God says through Amos. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. As we've seen through the book of Amos, God, God judges everybody. He judges everybody. There are names that you and I cannot pronounce that are in this judgment, but we see that God judges the nations. He moves from the nations and then he zeroes in, like we've seen over the past weeks, on Israel because they were his people. And he, he judges them and talks about their sin. But then in this passage, he starts restoration with the people of Israel. And then he works his way out to the nations. This is a great picture. But here the name Edom is particularly identified, and this, this name's got some family history with it. Now, it's not the kind of family history that we want to talk about around the Thanksgiving table. It's, uh, it's history of rivalry. It's history of uh, deceit. It's history of stealing. You know, this Edom comes from Esau. And if you know a little bit about your Old Testament history, Esau and Jacob were brothers. They were sons of Isaac, who was son of Abraham. And in this relationship, in this family, there were some shady deals. Jacob was a deceiver and he deceived Esau and he took all of the inheritance. You imagine that in your own family. If your brother or your sister connived to get your inheritance, how much maybe bitterness that would develop in your life. We see that's what's happened with Edom and with Israel. They've become enemies over generations and generations and generations. And this name, Edom, signifies opposition to God's kingdom. And so as we see Amos and God talking about Edom being possessed by the kingdom, it's talking about an end to all opposition against God and his kingdom. As God shares this picture, this booth, this house, this kingdom spreads and begins to incorporate all the nations of of the world into the kingdom of God. What was once unavailable to the Gentiles is now open wide through the work of Jesus to bring in people who had no hope into a relationship with a living God. We see this passage, which I think is just an amazing testament to how God keeps his promises, that we see this, this same passage, Amos chapter nine, quoted in the book of Acts. Whenever in the Jerusalem council, they're trying to figure out do, do Gentiles, like, can they really be in this kingdom? Like, are they really part of the people of God? Is it just by faith? They just have to believe in Jesus and they can be part of this kingdom? Don't they have to do, like, all the stuff that we did, like, accept the covenants and, and get circumcised and, and go through the Mosaic law? Don't they have to do all that stuff? And James, 
says this in, in Acts chapter 15. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written from Amos, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James in his answer says, no, they don't have to become Jews to become people of the kingdom of God. It's by faith and faith alone. Those nations who are at constant war with God are now partakers with God's people in his kingdom. The promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis was, was alluded to in Amos and then is fulfilled as the nations through the finished work of Jesus find their place in the kingdom of God. Great hope that we find in this restoration is that God makes enemies his people. He makes enemies like you and me of his, his people. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God promised to bring a king. He promised to build a house that incorporates Jews and Gentiles alike, and he has done it. He is doing it. Every day as we look around the world and we see people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue putting their faith in Jesus, we see that God continues to keep his promises. God keeps his promises. Not only does he restore hope through bringing a king, not only does he restore hope through bringing a kingdom, God restores hope by reversing the effects of sin. We see this in verse 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. How many of you ever tried your hand at gardening? We got any gardeners in the house? Okay, we got a few of you. Now, if you have, then this little pack of seeds is your guide, isn't it? On the back of this little pack of seeds has all kinds of pertinent information for you as a gardener. It's got information about what kind of sunlight needs to be uh, available to the plant that you're planting. It tells you how long it's gonna be before it blooms. It tells you uh, how deep to plant it in the ground. It tells you what season to plant it in the ground. It tells you all of these things. In fact, this one says, don't plant it, scatter it. So you have all these different pieces of information that go into gardening, whether it's uh, plants, uh, vegetables, or whether it's flowers. We need a guide. The same is true for the people of Israel. As we think about their, their seasons, they plowed 
this field in October or November. They reaped the harvest in April or May. With the grapes, they, uh, they saw the treading happening in September or so, and we see them throwing seed in December. In both of these instances, there is a time span between the two. They're not happening simultaneously or right after one another, just like in your garden and in my garden. There's a time that spans between the time that we reap and the time that we sow. But this passage pictures something completely different than happens in your backyard. It pictures a time when the abundance of produce is so rich that they can't even keep up with what they have coming in. They're running into each other out in the fields like, like, oh, you're sowing, are you reaping? What are you doing out here? We have so much stuff coming in, we don't know what to do. It shows such a different picture than what we experience. Not only that we have experienced, but what people have experienced since Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And we saw even in that a curse that it was gonna take hard work. It was gonna take significant effort to yield anything from the ground. God continues in verse 14. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Not only will the effects of sin be undone on the ground, but the effects of sin will be undone in the lives of people. As we think about what's happened in, uh, in the book of Amos. God told the people that because of their sin, their homes would be inhabited by other people and their vineyards they would not be able to eat from. We see this earlier in Amos, where Amos writes in chapter five, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. We know from life that sin brings separation and destruction. I don't have to convince you of that today. We experience broken fellowship with God. We experience broken relationships with each other. Hatred and bitterness run rampant in our world. And as we look around, we might be, asked to be able to ask the question, can we ever hope that there's going to be a reversal in this? Again, God shows us in his word. Yes, there is hope because there's one day in history that marks the time in which God began this great reversal. You see, 2,000 years ago, a young lady went to a tomb. She went to a tomb expecting to find what people find at tombs, a dead body, because that's what sin does. Sin brings death. But whenever she got to the tomb, something was different. There was an angel there, and that angel said to this young lady, he said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he killed death. He conquered our greatest enemy in his resurrection to show as the first fruit that for all who would hope in him, there is a resurrection coming. The effects of sin are being undone as God, by his power and his spirit, transform and change people who once hated God and hated each other to people who love God and love one another. He is reversing the effects of sin in our lives. You see, now the gospel brings 
restoration and redemption. Now we don't experience this fully now, but we see glimmers of this all around us. And I don't know about you, but I miss them all the time. I look around and I see brokenness and darkness, but I miss the glimmers of hope in our world. I miss the glimmer of hope whenever a young boy or a young girl or a man or a woman puts their faith in Christ and is regenerated and given a new life in Christ. I miss the glimmer of hope when a marriage that looks like it was completely done with is restored as a husband and wife commit to apply biblical principles in their life and God does an amazing work. I miss the glimmer of hope when people begin to make sacrifices and obedience in their walk with Christ and God uses them in a magnificent way. You see, God, by his power, is transforming rebels into ambassadors. I think about this oftentimes when couples come into my office and they, and they come sometimes as a last-ditch effort and, I, and, and they say, is there really any hope for us? Is there any hope for this thing to get any better? I look at them and I say, guys, God saves sinners. If God can restore people who hated him and ran from him to do anything else, and if he can restore them by sending his son to die and raise from the dead, he can restore your marriage. He can change you and transform you to be people that reflect his character. Yes, there's hope for you. There's hope for you because Jesus is alive. If he wasn't alive, there wouldn't be any hope, but he is alive, and so there's hope. Friends, this is the great news that we have as it relates to the gospel. And in this, we continue to see that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to restore. He keeps his promises to reverse. And lastly, in this passage, we see that God restores hope in securing our eternity. Notice in verse 15, it says, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God promises the people a permanent inheritance. He promises them a home. He promises them security. God would plant them. God would protect them. God would give them an inheritance and no one could take it away. Nobody could take it away. There was never gonna be another exile. There was never gonna be another judgment. There was never gonna be another insecurity because God promised to keep them. He promises a day that will come in which he will reign and sin will be no more. How many of you long for that day? How many of you long for the day in which you will be gone from the presence of sin only to experience the glorified state of seeing Jesus face to face? I do. I look forward to it daily to say, God, I can't wait till I get rid of this body of sin and I'm in your presence forevermore. And how do we know this is gonna be a reality? How can we have hope that our eternity is secure? God gives us his spirit as a, a down payment. He gives us his spirit as a, as a promise, as a seal to know that his promises are sure. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. In him you also, he's talking about Jesus. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you guys know who promised the Spirit? Spoiler, Jesus did. 
Jesus did in John chapter 15 and 16. You remember that time whenever the, where the disciples were getting really nervous about Jesus going away? Remember he said, I'm going to go away, and they're like, oh, Jesus. Whoa, don't, oh, you can't do that. Things are going really good now. Things are kind of on the upper trajectory. We've cast out a bunch of demons. Like, we're doing good. You're healing people, feeding us. We're always full. You can't go away. You can't go anywhere. If you're here, we're good. If you're gone, we don't know what to do. Jesus says to them, it's really better for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send you the helper, the spirit. And he's going to dwell in you. And he's going to transform you from the inside out. And he will always be with you. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And I'm going to take you there. We'll be there forever together. Do we know, do you guys know when this happened? Whenever Jesus fulfilled this promise? In Acts chapter 1 and 2. When Jesus ascended to heaven, where he will come from one day to receive his people, in that day he sent the Spirit to dwell in believers. He sent the Spirit to change and transform. We see in Acts chapter 1 and 2 the work of the Spirit beginning to take place. Guys, our eternity is secure because God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises So the answer to our question today, can we hope? Yes. The reason the answer is true is because God keeps his promises and the basis upon which we know that is true is Jesus. God sent Jesus to confirm and affirm every promise that he's ever made so that we can have hope. Our hope is rooted in the provision of a promised king. If we are to have hope in this world, it must be fixed on the finished work of Jesus. In his incarnation, he fulfills the prophetic word from Genesis all the way to Malachi concerning the true Adam, the true David. In his life, he obeyed the law, perfectly fulfilling the law. He fulfilled every single point of righteousness. And in his death, he offers himself to bear the sins of those who have put their trust in him. He fully satisfies the judgment of God on behalf of those who would believe in him. And then he rose triumphantly over the grave and over sin and over every enemy that we face. He has conquered them and he is offering today to you a new life. He's offering today to you a resurrection life for all those who would turn from their sin, who would put their faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins and a right standing with God. But what does that mean for us today? I want you guys to have three takeaways as we conclude our time today. The first takeaway is this. Hope is available to you today. As you hear this message, some of you guys may be thinking, if you only knew me, if you only knew the wreck that I've made this life. If you look at Israel, they look like the poster child for righteousness compared to me. You're telling me today that there's hope for me. I'm telling you today that there's hope for you. Because of God's promise-keeping power. If he can restore the ruin of Israel, if he can undo the effects of Adam and Eve's sin, he can change you. He can restore you to be an image bearer that looks more and more like his perfect son, Jesus Christ. He can change and restore you today and he calls you to surrender your life to King Jesus, his promised king, to become part of his kingdom, 
to abide, have his spirit abide in you, to relinquish your attempts of trying to run your life your own way and surrender to him. He offers you life. He offers you security. He offers you an eternity with him today. Come to him by faith. Second takeaway is this. Hope fuels us to follow even when times are hard. Hope says, I know my future is secure because God keeps his promises. I don't have to worry about today or tomorrow. I can take steps of faith. I can take steps even when I don't know the outcome in an earthly way, but I know the one who is in control of the outcome. I know the one who has made promise after promise after promise that I can believe in and trust in. When I'm called upon to do difficult things like forgive somebody that sinned against me, And that's a hard thing for me to do. I can put to death anger and bitterness and wrath. And I can forgive because I know the power of God's spirit is at work in me to accomplish those things. When I'm called upon to share the gospel with somebody who I'm not sure if they're going to believe or accept me, I don't have to be worried about that. I can know that this is what God calls me to. He's gonna strengthen me to accomplish it. I think about the Christians around the world, in Nigeria and in Congo and in France and all around the world whose lives are on the line. Whenever they say, I believe in Jesus, they say, times are tough, but even if I die, I gain because I get to go to be with him because my security is in his promise. Lastly, Hope compels us to share with others so they too can enjoy the blessings of God's saving work. If we have this good news, this news of a promised king, this news of a kingdom that endures forever, if we have this news of a a curse being reversed and we can be changed and different and we have a secure eternity, why would we not tell other people about that? And think about the times when you tell people about stocks that are going up and why they should get on board. This is infinitely better than any stock. This is infinitely better than any trend in the market. This is eternity. And people have only one hope. It is because God promises that there's only one way and that way is Jesus. So let's be the kind of people that who, who have this hope as an anchor to our soul and we are not fearful about what may come but we wanna share with others the good news of the gospel. God, since this is true, since God keeps his promises and since Jesus is our hope, there is nothing to fear. Not today, not on Tuesday, not ever. God has given us his precious promises. He's given you thousands upon thousands upon thousands of promises. And every day he says, come and read them. Come and see what I will do if you trust in me. Come and see how I change and transform people. Come and proclaim to a world who is putting their hope in a million uncertainties. Come and proclaim to them that there is one steadfast way. There is one thing that can change you. And whenever we, as his people, go out into the world, 
we take our stand and say, we will go wherever God calls us to go. We will give whatever he calls us to give. We will do whatever he calls us to do because our hope is not in the uncertainties that this world tries to sell us, tries to pitch to us as good and best for us. We say, no, those things are not hopeful things. The things that are hopeful are the things that are found in Christ. And we are consumed with a passion to make known his name because it's only in his name that there's hope, that there's freedom, that there's actually restoration. Over the course of this last week, as I've prepared this message, I had an overwhelming sense that we needed to close this service and this series with a song of declaration, a declaration that we are gonna trust the Lord, that our hope is found in him and in him alone. This declaration isn't just for us personally, it is. I want you to declare this personally as a reminder to yourself, but it is for us corporately. It is for us to sing to one another these great truths of God's word to solidify in our hearts and in our minds that when we walk out of here, our hope is in Christ. That we're gonna encourage each other with these things so that our souls are anchored to the word of God and the promises that he has given to us. So I'm gonna ask that you guys would stand with us. I'm gonna lead us in a word of prayer. And then after that, Matt's going to lead us in this song. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us great promises that we don't have to be fearful, that we don't have to be anxious, that we can trust in you. We thank you for Christ who has who's accomplished our salvation and today we can look to him for help and for hope. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts with affection for him in a continued way and that you would get the glory for all these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.